You're listening to the On the NBA Beat Podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts, while the Lakers have two. Bryant, to shot! LeBron James with no regard for human life! Jordan. Oh, a spectacular by Michael Jordan! And now, your host. Lauren Lee Chen, and the Twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. The regular season came to a thrilling close on Wednesday, which means that next week we're excited to be shifting to playoff coverage. Before that, though, we're going to squeeze in one more team interview. The Sixers have had a tumultuous last week of the season, to say the least. Our expert for this episode is none other than Michael Levin, editor of the SB Nation website, Liberty Ballers and co-host of the 76ers podcast, The Rights to Ricky Sanchez. When he's not talking about basketball, he's also a writer on the Fox comedy, The Grinder, with Rob Lowe and Fred Savage. He wrote the episode that just came out this past week, and just might have slipped in a couple Sixers references. Hey Mike, how's it going? Hey guys, what's going on? Not much. The big news last week for the 76ers, obviously, was... Sam Hinkie's resignation. There was a big show. He put out that 13-page resignation letter. What were your feelings about that? And also talk about how you felt about his tenure. Well, first thought at looking at the 13-page letter was, I mean, I could have done with 13 more pages. I would have liked 50. I would have liked a novel, just a full-out storytelling device. He's trying to self-publish this book for a while, and he decides to like sort of embed his resignation letter in this nice detective story. Maybe that would have been cool. Do, do you uh, think he's been working on that one for a while? Oh, I think so, yeah. I think he's, well, for sure a bright guy, but probably since Colangelo was hired, he started thinking about like, alright, is this going to be real? And sort of like pooling his thoughts together, and then like maybe taking some notes down, and then that sort of transitioned into this 13-page opus. He could crowdfund probably on just even via basketball Twitter. I think you'd get a lot of donations. I would I would love that. Just ask Sam, like, hey, you're not a GM anymore. Maybe you want to be a novelist. <laughs> I think that'd be cool. <laughs> My personal feelings towards Sam, I'm a huge fan of his. Uh, I think in order to fully understand the Sixers, the, the plight of the Sixers writer or Sixers fan, you have to consider where they came from. And so anytime you really talk about it, it has to be talked into in this larger discussion of after Iverson, and I'm not saying Iverson like, you know, 2007, because he still like came back for a second term, like even as late as like 2010, I think. The Sixers after 2001 were like just aimless, directionless, hopeless, totally skating by. I think from like 2002 to 2012, their record was... Like they were like 431 and like 432. Like it was like so close to 500 and mediocrity was really the name of the game. So for years it was like that. And then they made this, they took a big swing after, after the new owners came in and made that Bynum trade, which obviously didn't work out, but sort of set the tone of like, hey, we're making high risk choices to try to become that elite team. And so after Doug Collins and Rod Thorne and Ed Stefanski and Tony DeLeo, all those guys, left thankfully they hire sam hinky and decided like okay we're actually going to rebuild and so for for us at liberty ballers and for me personally it's what we wanted for years and years and years because the foundation that they were building on for so long was flawed and faulty 
and totally capped at best a scrappy playoff team that would win maybe a round and at worst like just a terrible team so we all were very excited when hinky came in and we've been very supportive of the process for super long for as long as it was and we never we never really lost like a tremendous amount of faith anytime they lost like 30 games in a row then it became like okay come on like let's maybe pick it up but no we were we were very big fans of sam we still are to the annoyance of sixers ownership we're very vocal about it and um we're really upset that he's gone like it's it's just sad we're sad all the time and do you think the way this happened with, you know, Colangelo coming in and talking about bringing in another guy in at Hinky's level, sort of forcing Hinky out, does that do a disservice to the fans who stuck with the teams through these bad seasons because they believed in the process, they trusted the process? I know you guys at Liberty Ballers, you guys always have the draft lottery party and you get really excited about, you know, the future of the team and what Hinky's been doing with it. Yeah, I think if you look at the record, you'll be like, okay, for three years, they won a game and a half and lost everything else. And it's like, well, what's the point? And I think that there's the national narrative became like, they're just trying to lose. They're just trying to lose forever. And there's like no hope to it. But that clearly, you know, if you, if you really sit down and think about it for even a second, you can see that what they were doing made sense and that the people that supported the plan were on board with pretty much everything. I think there was that narrative about how Hinky doesn't talk enough and doesn't talk to the media enough and fans are like clueless about what they're doing. But ultimately, from where I stood, Sixers fans were more keyed into what the plan was with Hinky than at any other point in my life. With Ed Stefanski and Rod Thorne, it was years of just like, well, you know, maybe Greg Buckner's the answer. And just like those like worthless signings of like, well, if everything has to go right, the Sixers, Doug Collins is, I guess, I don't know if it was last year or the second to last year. I can't remember. But they went to the playoffs as an eight seed and beat the Bulls in the first round because Derrick Rose got hurt, Joakim Noah got hurt, and the Wall Dang's wrist was falling off. So for me, all of that was the luckiest thing in the world. And it takes a lot more luck for that to happen than it does for them to you know get a top pick and hope that top pick becomes a building block and so for me that was always the case and it was never this whole idea about just the fans feeling lost and hopeless is is just a lie because we got it and we understood and the people that didn't understood were just like they'll come back when the sixers are good so i think it was it did to a large extent alienate a lot of fans that have hung with the team for a while just to really latch on to this, you know, Colangelo's had some success in his career. He's been in basketball for like 60 years forever and not won a, not won a championship. So I don't know if he's, you know, not, not that that means everything, but a, he's not a legacy of winning. He's just right. a legacy of like existing. From your perspective, Mike, uh-huh. was the one in 30 start really the beginning of the end for Hinky? I mean, I know we thought they would be bad and the plan was to be bad. But when they were that bad, was that why the league kind of was pressured into getting involved? It was a combination of things. I think we all honestly thought that this was going to be the year where they start to take a step in the at least winning more games direction. They won 19 games the first year. They won 18 games the second year. And I, th- I think this year we were all anticipating like a mid-20s 
kind of win total. I think before the season, I said 28. So we were all surprised when they started off as bad as they did. And it seemed like they just really, really, really needed a point guard. With Tony Roten out and Kendall Marshall still out, you know, a bunch of guys traded and new and fresh and everything. We, we really thought this was the year that like continuity would start to show. And so I think the one in 30 start did take a toll on some people. But more than that, I think it was the, it was the Jaleel Okafor stuff and how he got into a bar fight outside of Boston and got a ticket for speeding like 108 on a bridge and got a gun pulled in his face, which was all really surprising for us because he's, from all accounts, like a good kid that just really wants to like be good at basketball. So I think he just sort of, you know, there's there's pressure and frustration at being rich and famous at like age 19 so not that it's forgivable but it's certainly understandable to some extent so uh i think that is what ultimately you know the losing the league can handle but once brett brown did a really good job the first two years of keeping and even this year to to a large extent of keeping the locker room intact throughout this like constant losing and disappointment and i think once the league got whispers that i mean more than whispers once it started becoming evident that oh, it's not just the losing, like here's this kid that's, you know, in trouble and it, things could get ugly. Yeah. I think finally it was like, all right, let's bring in somebody. Let's start the Colangelo, like you, snowball. Yeah, you mentioned Brett Brown and I'm not sure if you saw the Washington Post piece, I'm assuming you did on him. It was about his eternal optimism, it seems. I think in such a cutthroat industry where most franchises, if you're a head coach, you have such a, a short window of opportunity to win or you're out. I think it's refreshing that he was given more patience, that losing was okay, but that he was seeing so much growth personally from players off the court, on the court. Just talk about that a little bit. Yeah, that well, that was the whole idea. It was so they hired Hinky in, I think, May 2013, and it was a long interview process with Sam. They had brought in like Mike Zarin was in there. I think Danny Ferry maybe, unless he was already in Atlanta. There were a couple. There were a bunch of like Mike Penn. Isn't that his name? Mike Penn was on ESPN, like salary cap guy. I um, think it's Penn. Something. Tom Penn. Tom, Tom, Tom Penn. Penn. Oh, okay. Formerly. Uh, so they had all these guys and they took their time. And then when Hinky came in, it was like, okay, we kind of know what the deal is. He's, he's coming from Houston. It's a whole thing. And then they they didn't have a coach for that whole summer. And so they went into the draft and traded Drew for Nerlens and a pick without a coach. So people, I remember like Charles Barkley, like ripping them for that. And like people just being very upset about how long it's taking them to hire a coach. And it's like, yo, he's trying to just get some players. He's getting his bearings and doing a lot of interviews. So I never really had a, an issue with doing your diligence, especially in like July and August when, you know, you don't really need a coach yet. But they eventually hired Brett, and the deal with Brett was like, yo, I know what you guys are doing. You're not going to hide. We're not going to compete right now. I can see the plan. Like it's, I see what's happening. We're having communication. So, so with Brett, it was always like, I need guaranteed years. I'm not going to come in here and just like rack up 150 losses in two years for you to just fire me. So I need four years. So that was like the staking point. And so Brett, for years, has operated under... A, a long leash of just like, look, I'm going to coach the guys I have and I'm going to try to turn them into like good people and a consistent, like improving bunch of guys. And I think every, everybody was on board with that. There were times when 
Brett's coaching style, specifically at the ends of games, came into question. But ultimately, we all sort of landed on, look, he doesn't have the talent yet, so let's not start to poke holes. We're all very happy with how Brett has managed the team and managed personalities and, and been really the face of the organization for three years. But then when Sam got pushed out and Colangelo emerged as this tremendous snake, we are all sort of leery and worried that Brett will be pushed out soon as well. It's pretty amazing the job that Brett Brown's done managing personnel and taking all this losing in stride and just being yeah. really optimistic. Going forward, are you satisfied with the results? Because the team was terrible when Hinky took over, but now in terms of assets, they seem better off. And they have a, rid- a ridiculously large number of picks coming, and still Embiid and Saric waiting. Yeah, so they were in such bad shape in 2012 and 2013 when, when they made the decision to go to Hinky. They owed two first-round picks, one for the Bynum deal, which was going to Orlando, and then one, it was to Miami, and then it became to Boston for Arnett Moultrie. They traded a first-round pick to get get back into the first round in, the, in that draft to 27 to pick Moultrie. And I'm still mad about it now. I'm all heated. I want to throw something. So Hinky was, was in debt for two picks. And no real young players. I mean, Drew and Evan, but not a ton of youthful, upsidey guys. Like, just not much. Really, really... It was they were in bad shape for a long time. So Hinky came comes in and prioritizes restocking, not, not just picks, but young players and trying to develop them and and give them the time and the platform they need to improve and to and to prove whether or not they're worthy of sticking on the team long term. And so they have a ton of picks. They have as many as four first round picks in this draft. You add in Joel Embiid, who by all accounts seems to be healthy right now and will participate in more rigorous training and hopefully be ready by the start of next season and Dario Saric who again by all accounts seems to be coming over this coming season so with, there's as many as but let's say there's five very good players talented players coming over into this season so I, I, there's a ton of reasons to be optimistic the only reason not to be optimistic is that the owners have proven themselves to be like mm, not clueless, just recently a string of like horrible decisions, a confluence of confidence-breaking decisions in a row, all at once. It's happening so fast. But Hinky did a great job. I mean, he, he did exactly what he and the owners decided on, which was let's get younger, let's develop some guys, and let's restock the picks and start to build it towards this being like a five-year plan and it's a real shame for everybody unless your name's colangelo that he's not getting the shot to really see this thing through to the end yeah unless your name's colangelo you called him jerry colangelo a snake earlier this podcast i think a lot of outsiders when they made that hire of jerry colangelo in sort of quote-unquote an advisory role they didn't realize as soon as he came into the organization how much tension that created in the front office this season and also they maybe didn't realize this season or next season was going to be the start of entering the next phase of the process anyways with so many picks and also Embiid and Sarge expected to come in yeah 
But can you just talk about how Derry Colangelo, we all think of him sort of as this like fatherly, grandfatherly figure who's looking over this team, but why you would be calling him a snake? What, yeah. what sort of tensions that he created? He's more like, like a grandfatherly figure who like touches his nephews. Like that's closer <laughs> to like what his role in this team has been. There's just been total disarray with who did what in the hiring of Jerry Colangelo. Everybody denies something. Colangelo says, yeah, the league reached out to me and says, so hey, come work for the Sixers and like help them out. And Adam Silver's like, no, I didn't. I didn't do anything. They asked for my help, uh, but I would never step in and interfere. And Josh Harris is like, I didn't even ask for anybody's help. I found him. I mean, like everyone's just lying about stuff. There's no clear answer. And so he comes in right around the time the Jaleel thing happens as this like chairman. And in my head, I'm optimistic when it comes to Sixers owners because they've given me every reason to be optimistic that they're patient and they get it. In my head, I'm like, great, this is a value add. Hinky keeps his job. Colangelo comes in as an advisor in this sort of chairman capacity, gets to talk to other teams, maybe like smooths over some relationships that Hinky has sort of exploited because Hinky just didn't really play the game as well as he should have. And so it's like, it seemed to be a win-win. I remember tweeting because people like called me out on it retroactively that adding Jerry Colangelo is, is the trading for Paul George of executive moves. So it was like, I was excited about it. I, I mean, people were concerned and I chose to be optimistic about it because for my head, it was like, if they wanted to fire Hinky or marginalize Hinky, then they would have just done it. It didn't make sense to like add somebody and, and have Hinky at the press conference being like, yeah, this is great. We're adding like more reputable guys to the organization. I like hearing multiple voices. This is important. Hopefully it will help. But really what it boiled down to was Colangelo got hired and immediately started to undo everything and try to get his son hired. Before the Sixers brought in Jerry, Jerry was pressuring them to hire Brian instead. And they didn't want Brian. So Jerry came on and then started this process of leaking a ton of stories to the media, starting tension between the owners and Sam and just creating a divide and really like making things ugly everywhere in the front office. And Sam, by all accounts, the whole time was trying to make it work and trying to have like a dialogue. And this is most of this is from the Woj piece that he wrote after the fact. And so people were trying to get Sam to, you know, eventually move into a smaller capacity because they wanted to bring in an actual GM like on his level, which once you've get gotten demoted once, because it's clear that that's what it was, and then they're asking you to take another demotion again, then like, I think you're not staying around for that time. The party line of ownership and the Colangelos is we expected Sam to be here. We're totally surprised that he quit. But it's like, if you demote someone twice, what the hell do you think they're going to do? It's not worth it. Either they're really dumb and thought that he would just like take it lying down, or they're just continuing to string along this horse crap lie that nobody yeah. believes. And then on top of that lie, this thing about Brian being like, oh, the clear best candidate for the job. Well, you wouldn't know what the best candidate for the job was because you only interviewed two people. And the other one was Danny Ferry, who you already interviewed years ago. Mm -hmm. And there's the, the compounded lie that Jerry himself was not involved in the process of interviewing Brian, which is, again, a lie because 
Jerry tried to get Brian the job before he even had the job. So it's so many lies on top of each other, and the optics look horrible for the organization. The people that didn't like the direction still don't like it because no one is excited about a Colangelo hiring a Colangelo and then lying about stuff. And the people that supported the team are just furious because of how it all went down and how how they said, you know, trust the process and we're going to really give this the time it needed. There's no shortcuts to the top. There's only shortcuts to the middle. And so we're like, we're committed to this rebuild. And then it's like, oh, you know what? We brought in this old guy and he hired his son. And then uh, we're going to kick that other guy out. And uh, oh, also Jerry just stepped down. So yeah. now it's just Brian Colangelo. It's just everything that happened with the Sixers in the last week, really. It was a week or two. Has been awful. Just totally, totally awful. And that's including Nerlens Noel like getting sued for trashing a rental house. And even months ago with all the Jaleel stuff, like there's been some PR nightmares for this team ever since Bynum got traded here. And it's, uh, it hasn't gotten better. It sound and just to put it nicely, it sounds like the front office situation was horrible and untenable. Those are probably the nicest words. I once Jerry, once Jerry got there, for sure, horrible, yeah. untenable. At least very like tight and awkward yeah. and uncomfortable about like final say and all that stuff. One thing I think you probably will be a little happier to talk about, I think, is Carl Landry's role on the team. Oh yeah, he's kind of like one guy that stands out. Being on a team like this, usually you get rid of veterans. There's at some point in the process no need for them, but you do want to um, mentor the young guys. And I'm sure he's played a critical role, even though it hasn't really translated in the wins loss column. What what has he done for that? Uh, well, he was out for the first few months, and so it was hard to. He came over in the Stauskas trade, so it was him and Stauskas and Jason Thompson and a couple pick swaps and another first round pick in 2018 from the kings for really nothing at all which was a pretty solid trade if i don't if i don't say so myself thank you vivek but (laughs) mostly he's just been like there's been so many young guys that have been coming through and they've taken chances on some guys and and really like you said eschewed this veteran leadership primarily but it's not so much as leadership that I was ever really worried about so much as it is just knowing where to be on the court. Jason Richardson was on the team the, the last year and provided that sort of just guide to it. And they had like Thaddeus Young and Spencer Hawes and stuff before that also. But like this was the first year where there was like, there's not a veteran in sight. And Carl Landry coming in and then eventually Ish Smith, I think that was the right order, starting to just like get where people should be on offense and create spacing and open lanes up and stuff. And lately, the past, I mean, the last month of the season, he was just on fire. It was sort of nice to be able to just get him the ball at like 19 feet and you know he's going to make it. He still can't play any defense and he's not really a very good player, but I appreciate what he did for this team and really like being a good soldier. And like, he has miles and miles of heart too. Yeah, like, a ton of heart. A ton of heart. Yeah. And then they added Elton Brand to be like the even older version of that. That was a reference to the replacements, if anyone got it. I way. did get it. It's Gene Hackman talking about Shane Falcon. <laughs> yeah. I'm there. Thanks. With you. <laughs> People say the Sixers haven't done well in the draft, but in retrospect, you can look back maybe at the picks. 
and say that of the reasonable people available, they're getting, they're drafting pretty good value. But do you think there is a problem in the strategy of drafting purely on talent rather than fit when a lot of the top guys they picked play similar positions, like power forward, for example? Pretty much all center. They tried to play Nerlens at power forward and it didn't go well. So I would say the last three top picks that they've had, Nerlens, Joel, and Jaleel, are all pretty pure fives. That took like best player available to the highest extreme that it could get. And I respect it. I respect that move that you're like, well, look, we're just going to draft on value. But ultimately, I think that they sort of backed themselves into a corner a little bit because A, teams don't like trading with Sam because he is a hard ass. Like he's a stickler. He's not going to make a trade on a whim. He's going to make sure he's winning the trade in his mind. And people know that they need to deal a big man. Like there's no way that they're going to spend the next 10 years with Nerlens, Jaleel, and Joel on the team. It's just not going to happen. So I think that uh, they sort of stuck to their guns in an honorable way. And, and for me, it, it hasn't worked out yet. My issue with that is mostly I didn't like the Jaleel pick ever. I was never a big fan of Jaleel. I didn't think his game would translate. I had him like eighth on my board before the draft. We all thought that D'Angelo was going to fall to three and the Lakers would have taken Jaleel at two. But I still, I, I, I would have taken a guy like Justice Winslow or Chris Depps or uh, Mario Hazonia or even Stanley Johnson. Those are guys that I, that I liked and thought would be not only a better fit, but just a better piece with the Sixers going forward. And I think that they probably, you know, you've been around Sam enough that even though Jaleel is this dominant offensive presence, he doesn't play the style that the Sixers play. He doesn't play defense, and it's tough to be a good, useful big man unless you're protecting the rim, which Jaleel doesn't do. You look at a guy like Al Jefferson and Nick Vucevic and see that like those guys aren't useful for winning teams. And I think that ultimately they probably thought, look, we'll move him. We're just going to take him because he's the best value. And I think that that was, you know, they could trade him now. They could trade him soon. But ultimately, I think that they probably just, I don't want to believe that they, that Hinky actually thought Jaleel was like a perfect fit. So I, I tend to be like, okay, they probably thought that they could trade him. And they haven't yet. That's not to say they won't, but I think that they probably should have just taken someone else. That is my thing. But I agree with you in the sense that people do say that they don't draft well or they haven't drafted well. And I disagree because A, Sarich, we don't know yet. He's ha He has played great ball in Europe, so he could come over and be a really solid player. And Joel, look, there's arguments to go on either side. But for me, when you're drafting at the top of the draft, you're a bad team. And if you're a bad team, you need elite talent. That's the whole point of this whole thing is to get elite talent. It's not to say that Aaron Gordon or Dante Exum or anybody else coming out of that draft, Julius Randle, none of those guys are bad players, but I don't think any of them could be the best player in a championship team. And Joel has that potential. And so even with the injury risk, I think ultimately you got to look at the big picture and say, is it worth the, you know, 30% of him having a healthy career? I don't know, just making up a number. 30% plus the like decent percentage that he's a surefire all-star and possibly like an MVP candidate? I think it is. And, you know, hopefully he can come back next season and prove Hinky right. But uh, to say that he hasn't drafted well when when he's... You know, he had the rookie of the year with MCW and then traded him for a top five Lakers pick. 
And he found KJ McDaniels and Jeremy Grant and Rashawn Holmes in the second round and gotten Robert Covington for nothing and TJ McConnell for nothing. And there's a lot of NBA players that they've found through the draft that I think just because they didn't pick like Giannis when other people passed on Giannis is I think sort of ignoring how hard it is to draft. And the reason why he accrued so many picks is because he knows sometimes you miss or not even miss, but just don't get all the ball. So I think a problem people point to specifically for this draft strategy is that especially with Noel and Bede and Okafor, since it's really hard to play them all together, especially on a team with really low level guards, to say the least, it might hinder their development. So they might not really reach their potential or be as good as they could be. But other than the core guys that we've already talked about, Noel Okafor and Bede Saric, maybe, do you think there are other current pieces on this team that you think could likely be in a part of the future of this franchise? Or do you think everyone other than those guys are mostly assets and even those guys probably? Yeah, I think, look, if Sam was here, I'd probably have a better handle on it. I really don't know what Colangelo's going to do. I think he is probably feeling the pressure and sort of just brings it on his own to like win now. They're saying that they're not going to take shortcuts and, and like do a full deviation from, from what, what Sam's built, but you know, you never know. I look at a guy like Jeremy Grant, who I think continues to get better. He's only in his second year and he's really good. He still needs a jump shot. He's sort of wild when he goes to the rim, but he's got a pretty interesting skill set and I think could be like a legitimate player. Robert Covington is great. He's opening up different parts of his game, like his driving more lately. He's a good small ball four. I think that's probably where he ends up. He's a really good shooter, especially contested shots. He has a really high release point and isn't afraid to take shots with guys on him. TJ McConnell is a rookie undrafted point guard and just really good. Like He's a very solid backup point guard, and I would kill to have him as a backup point guard for 10 years. I worry that they're going to give Ish Smith big money. I hope they don't. Other guys, I think I think Stauskas struggles at times with his consistency and certainly with his strength. He needs to get stronger a lot, especially on defense. That'll help. But he shows stuff as a as a shooter and a shot create playmaker. Really, he's better than people give him credit for on with the ball in his hands. Other guys, Rashawn Holmes is another center that they drafted at a Bowling Green, and he's very interesting. I could see him actually developing to be like you know, Maurice Spates with more defense. There's some solid guys there, and they. I agree that there's the sense of if you have a team of only young guys, then it's tough for them to be able to find themselves in positions to succeed when they're all sort of flailing about. But Hinky's done a good job of getting some tertiary pieces, and if Embiid or hopefully Simmons or Ingram is that star that they can build around, or both then I think that things would start to look a lot better once you start adding people this offseason and beyond. We'll make this the last question. I'm sure there are a lot of challenges or some challenges at least with regard to writing about a team that is expected to lose most games, the vast majority of games. But I'm sure there are also there's a lot more freedom that it affords you as a writer to focus on big picture things or more features, for example. What were some of the freedoms that you had that you think you might not have had covering a team that the day-to-day matters more? Oh Well, it's certainly weird 
this, the weirdness of the Sixers for the last, I mean, forever has always been pretty evident. And we've done some tremendously dumb stuff on Liberty Ballers and on my podcast. And so it's fun to not necessarily care. Like for the lottery party this year, we have a shirt with every player of the Sam Hinkie era. And there's like a hundred names on it. I think there's actually like 99 names and Sam himself is the hundredth name. So like, you know, you try to name all those guys and there's just, it's just a really weird community that we've built of, of Sixers fans who've, who've hung in there this long. I remember five years ago and I don't know, know why I still like have it in my memory. The Oklahoma City site, Welcome to Loud City. It was the playoffs and the Thunder were playing somebody and somebody on that site was writing about like defensive rotations and lineups and what works best against what and trying to figure out the matchups against whoever they were playing against and i remember reading that and being like liberty ballers is so far away from writing about this like it matters that it's insane like the idea that a 36 win team back then and now like an 18 to 10 win team would care about those kinds of matchups is just like it doesn't matter like it's it's so futile and so i sort of yearn for the future if it ever comes when the Sixers matter enough to where we can talk about what defensive matchups and if switching is the right move it doesn't I mean they've they've been playing such non-basketball for so long it's almost like you could just do like you're just playing for the offseason and you can just be like NBA 2k simulate the season and then just be like okay we're back to this thing like I don't to some extent you don't care about it that's a great analogy the video game and that's fun to do. I mean, to just yeah. simulate past the season. You don't even need to play games. Just make no. the moves. If they didn't play a game the last three years, I think everybody would have been probably fine with it. Well, there you go. It was really fun, though, talking about the 76ers and trusting the process with you. Oh, yeah. Well, it's over. It's the, that's the end of end of the road for the process. Hopefully, uh, the Colangelos don't screw it up too bad. It'll, it'll be a different process. It will be. It'll certainly be different. We'll be around.